K-12 classical Christian schools are not the end of most students' educational journey. College, or 13th grade as I like to call it, looms in the distance. And most of our graduates head off to a wide range of college experiences, from distinctly classical Christian colleges to state-run universities and everything in between. My guest today looked around at the current range of options and was determined to do something different, something classical and yet entrepreneurial. Not only will you want to hear about his new Hildegard College, but his analysis of the current college landscape is helpful to any of us in the K-12 space, regardless if we are inquiring educators or parents with our students trying to make the big college decision. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to this episode of Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here, welcoming you to this time that we get to have together once a week. It's a blessing, and I can't believe we've been doing Basecamp Live now for five years. Wow. It is uh, a growing podcast that is reaching the ends of the earth, and it's always encouraging to me to chat with those of you who are um, here in the U.S. and around the world that have been impacted by classical Christian education. Just drop me a quick email, info at basecamplive.com, where you're listening from, what's on your mind. I want to say a special shout-out to Jordan Devine, who wrote this email and said, I want to reach out and say how thankful I am for your podcast. I'm a student teacher with Madison Christian in Ohio, and being exposed to classical Christian education has been life-changing for me. It feels like my soul is complete. Your podcast has helped me in many areas of my life, so much so that it has become a part of my daily routine. I listen to y'all while I'm getting ready during the day, uh, on the week, and on most weekends. Thank you for all you do. Well, Jordan, thanks for writing and keeping uh, us in your ear uh, every day. You're going to eventually run out of them at a daily rate, and we'll have to go to the weekly rate. But uh, that is one thing I do appreciate. It was that one of the original intentions of Basecamp Live was that the various episodes are what off, is often called evergreen, meaning they're not just about one event in a moment, kind of a news-type information piece. They are always going to be relevant for the most part, whether they were recorded five years ago or just this month. They should have a direct impact on the work that we do as parents and as educators in the classical Christian ed space. So thank you for listening. Thanks for emailing info at basecamplive.com. And thank you to the sponsors of this episode, CAP, that's Classical Academic Press, the great work that they do, as well as ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, Union University, and Gordon College. These are amazing organizations and institutions that I encourage you to check out and learn more about. Well, my guest today is... A, as I said in the, in the very beginning, is a pretty courageous individual. You think you're busy. I can tell you starting a college is a very ambitious undertaking. And that is exactly what my guest today, Dr. Matthew Smith, decided to do as the founding president at Hildegard College. He teaches classical text and literature, philosophy, theology, geometry, and science. And he is a prolific writer, including uh, the book Performance and Religion in Early Modern England and Face-to-Face in Shakespearean Drama. He lives with his family in Fullerton, California, and is probably one of the best folks I know right now to kind of talk about what's happening in the larger college scene and what would motivate him to do this amazing work he's doing at Hildegard. So without further ado, this is my interview with Dr. Matthew Smith. 
Well, Dr. Matt Smith, welcome to Basecamp Live. It's good to be with you, Davies. Thanks, Matt. It's um, yeah, we were just chatting before. Our thanks to our good and mutual friend Jeremy Tate, the CEO of the Classic Learning Test, for connecting us up. He said, "You guys have got to talk." So, you've you've known Jeremy for a bit. It sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. Jeremy's a good friend of the college. Yeah. Well, we're we're gonna. I want to hear your story. I mean, this is. Um, I don't know many people that are as courageous as it would seemingly have. You'd have to be to start a college at this moment in our kind of cultural moment and time uh, in California of all places. I mean, you're doing some really important work that you're very, very passionate about. And those of us, you know, most of the listeners here on Basecamp are kind of in the realm of K-12 classical Christian education. And if anybody's listened to Basecamp for any time, you know that I always challenge uh, parents and educators. It's it's interesting, Matt. For some reason, we kind of were very intentional, especially in kind of K-6. And then it seems like there's a little bit more lightning uh, lightening up a bit of intentionality in terms of mm-hmm. sort of where the, where students are going. And then 13th grade, sometimes it's like, I don't know where they're even going. Don't worry about it. And yet that's really important. And we're going to talk about 13th grade and beyond your work there at Hildegard College. But let's just start out, just tell a little, your, a little bit of your journey. How did you end up where you are today starting a college? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe to temper expectations, maybe only a half measure of courage and another half measure of desperation looking at the higher education landscape and thinking, I can't do this. I can't, um, I can't work for institutions that aren't able to fulfill their expressed missions because of their abandonment of what we might call the lost tools of learning or liberal education. Um, and on top of that, uh, uh, I think a very much related ineffectiveness in what is the more popular motivation to go to school these days, which is to get a job. Right. So students tend to go to school for two reasons, university for two reasons, to uh, to be enriched or to get a job, more increasingly the latter. But the two are integrally in, are, are intimately tied to one another. And that's that's my um, that's much of my journey as a a student myself, publicly educated, not classically educated, getting my first taste of classical education in college um, and from that point on being laser focused on getting involved with it eventually after getting my higher degrees teaching it and trying to invite students into this transformative college experience uh, very much involved with my children's k-12 classical school here in fullerton california where i live veritas classical academy um, and so you know my journey is one that is sort of through the back door to classical education i would identify uh, my time in college, both learning the great texts and studying economics, politics, literature, philosophy, theology, mathematics, and so forth in a cross-disciplinary way, as is the classical way, and at the same time, seeking out beautiful experiences, going to symphonies and ballets, listening to great choral music at church. And it was at that point that I think I began to understand what was bifurcated in my soul, which was, I would think about the realm of feelings and the realm of utilitarian effectiveness, and then the realm of thought as three separate channels, and they're not. And so uh, at some point, maybe five years ago or so, I decided I'm going to look into founding a school in Southern California, knowing that there were some good examples of classically minded colleges around the country that were practicing a new model of college that was purposely small, not bloated, was not um, 
financially unaffordable was usually the in the best forms, in my opinion, independent of federal funding to be free of those constraints. And then because of their independence and their intentional scale, they could be academically challenging and invested in community and mission driven in a way that other schools could not. Yeah. And so it became my goal to look into what it would take to start such a school here in Southern California where, where none yeah. exists. And because we're, we're driven by, you know, to your point earlier, maybe courage for sure. And then just a sense of maybe desperation. I mean, your parent, your parents, your children are how old right now as a parent? 12 kids? years old, 10 years old, okay. eight years old. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're in that, you know, you've got a little bit of runway before it's college, but not a lot. And, right. and you're looking out there saying there's no shortage of options, but there's still nothing really sufficient in the vision of what you have. And we're going to talk about some of those very unique things that you guys mm -hmm. are doing. But back up again, I want to go in a little bit deeper. When you're talking about your own story, because I think this is significant, you, you were, like you said, public school and then ended up in various settings where you're getting exposure to great works and great art and great, uh, really, the, the full... Um, you know, trivium and quadrivium, it sounds like all of it sort of in front of you. What was there sort of a moment you mentioned something five years ago? Was there a moment when you, you really said, I, th this is so important and so transformative to you personally that now it has to really be a life mission for you. Is there a particular yes, reading? And, and yeah. you know, you, 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 you touched on it when you asked about the ages of my children, my children mm -hmm. uh, started attending, we took them from public school into a classical school. And uh, I got involved. I'm on the board of that school and helped volunteer there. And I began to ask myself as my my young, my oldest, sorry, was approaching nine or 10 years old, still a while from college. But uh, I would look at where the graduates of this school would go. And many of them were going to classical college. A lot of them were not and taking a very kind of pragmatic route. And I thought, well, I'm teaching at a big evangelical comprehensive university. Mm. And as a faculty member, a tenured faculty member, I have tuition benefits. That's, you know, that's one thing we get paid peanuts, but we <laughs> have this tuition benefit for our children if we're able to send them there. Yeah. And I, so, you know, my wife and I began to ask, do we want our children going to this school? And the answer wasn't as straightforward as we thought. And it, it really, the answer was, it depends. I mean, it depends on what she studies and what professors she takes and how she behaves and what circles she runs in. And then I, and then I began to face the question, what, uh, can can I answer the question, what will not just my child, but any 18-year-old learn at this university? Is that a question people even pose to universities anymore? What will my kid learn? What will I, if I'm an 18-year-old, learn at your school? And I think in the best estimation I have, that is at best a confusing question and maybe at worst an embarrassing question, just to speak candidly, to pose to most administrators and professors because their answer is just going to be well, it depends, you know, I could chart a course through the murky waters of our school that I think would give you a very good education, but it all depends on how you navigate it. And mm -hmm. although that is one answer and there's a, I think there's some wisdom in there. It's an insufficient answer when you're admitting 500 to a thousand or more students every year and asking them to pay $50,000 a year at that risk. And so it was at that moment, it was really from these personal motivations that I thought, well, if I'm not confident saying yes to my children, why would I be confident saying yes to other people's yeah. children and, yeah. you know, uh, uh, championing something that, that I think we could, not that I completely didn't believe in, but something that I think we could just do much better 
And the tide has already turned. There's a movement afoot in the classical renewal community uh, that's transforming higher education. And it's, it's you know, still a few decades, yeah. um, a few decades behind the K-12 movement, but it's certainly growing and it's exciting. Well, and just as a side note, and you know, I've talked about this, what's interesting too, it kind of the at the national level and working with the Society for Classical Learning, you know, we're, we're thinking about K-12, but we're having increasing conversations with folks like yourself and Jeremy Tate, who are then, you know, working in higher education. And what we're finding is there's actually, in many cases, more of a kindred spirit between the K-12 and the higher Christian or higher education folks like yourself that are thinking about it from a classical perspective than there are for you, you know, at your peer level, if you will, among fellow, you know, even in Christian college world, it's such a it's such a large departure from where we are typically. And so, yeah, I think there's going to be, you're, we're going to be hearing more and more about kind of, it'll be like K through 16 instead of just K through 12 mm-hmm. when you start thinking of it that way. Um, so yes. talk talk a little bit more because again, I want, we're going to get into and in, in after uh, later in the episode talking about, you know, how do you choose a college? What are those kinds of questions that educators and parents ought to be thinking about because the landscape has changed so dramatically. But it seems like perhaps we oversimplify it. You you know, people think, okay, well, there's obviously these, you know, Ivy League expensive, uh, very woke kind of modern schools. We probably don't want to go there. Um, or maybe, you know, there's the government state school thing. Maybe we don't want to go there. And then there's sort of generic Christian universities and probably like K-12, sometimes, the, again, broad brushstroke. Um, the great, they all love Jesus, but not really sure the education's of any significance um, so just, I mean, those are some massive buckets. Are there, are there other buckets that you would kind of point to and just say, here's really what the landscape looks like, especially again, as you looked around and went, yeah, there's, we're just coming up short as far as, uh, especially Christian colleges that are abandoning practices that do enable deep learning. For sure. And if I were to place the higher ed landscape into buckets, there, there would be three. Okay. One would include those who choose not to go to college. Sure. And I think that is a good decision for many people. And it's one that especially young men in our country are choosing. Schools are panicking over it because enrollment's declining for that reason. Uh, But they don't have a good answer, especially to these young men who are saying, well, why should I? Why should I do that? Where's the return on investment, not just economically, but in my quality of life and in my pursuit of the good and the true. The second bucket would be... uh, what I call the conventional university system, which includes most liberal arts colleges. It includes secular private, secular public, and also private religious, especially Christian schools. And the reason I am putting these in the same bucket, people might be surprised to hear Christian universities classified with with secular universities, is that in the most important ways, that is the, the ways that most deeply affect students learning at these schools, they're very similar to each other. Schools might have a kind of bolted on Christian appendix to their education, go to chapel, get involved with this summer missions trip, write a token ethics essay in your junior biology class or whatever it may be, but they are scrambling to figure out how to differentiate themselves from school, from secular versions of them that are often uh, more affordable or maybe more prestigious. Um, and I, I, I want to acknowledge at the same time that within a lot of these Christian universities, there are pockets, you know, especially these great books, honors colleges, including the one that I was educated at that, uh, that are, that are 
really fantastic places where good work is being done. My fear at the same time is that uh, there is nonetheless a disintegration of faith and learning and work due to the fact that they're housed at universities that don't share those visions. And the mm -hmm. best versions of these are ones where there's a good relationship. Sometimes there's not. Um, so, the, so the third bucket would be what I like to call the alternative college movement. I'm a little bit reluctant to use that word alternative because <laughs> I've mentioned this to founders of other classical colleges and they say sure. it reminds them of like the 90s or alternative rock music or yeah. something like that. Well, so they don't love they don't love the term. Or again, that word's been so misappropriated so many different ways. But yes, at, at core, we know what you mean. It's time for something. And really, different. I yeah. just mean a different model. It yeah. happens to be um, motivated at heart by classical ideals, which I would I would summarize as an education that is ordered towards a clear idea of the highest ends of all human moral activity. Hmm. Uh, might be an abstract way we can unpack that if you want, but but schools that believe that there is a right ordering of education because it connects the order of the universe to the order of human nature and yes. the soul and how an individual learns. And these schools, in addition to this classical motivation, this pedagogy or way of learning, are also based on an alternative model of school. So all of these things I mentioned before, the financial independence, a different idea of scope and focus, not investing in extracurriculars and this sort of vapid sense of adventure, but trusting that what students will actually thrive on is uh, is 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 academically challenging and rigorous coursework learned in community in a community of people they trust around lifelong friends and through faculty mentorship. Mm. As it turns out. Um, all of the polls, all of the research, secular and otherwise, uh, shows that that is what makes students believe upon graduation that their that their investment in college was yeah. worth it. Yeah. It is not all the things through which colleges and big universities tend to market students. It's the things that these classical schools go all in on. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point earlier about young men, and I, I think women are probably in, in this case too, which is they're certainly becoming savvy shoppers, if you will. They're not in, they're not unaware. And I think COVID only, you know, exposed to the light, if you will, the, maybe the, the thinness of the education. And so, I mean, I've talked to a lot of college students and two of my sons are, both my sons are in college right now. So, I mean, that sense of just the pragmatism, what's my ROI on this when I can go online mm -hmm. and basically jam out a few fairly simple classes and get the degree and check the box and move on to a master's or whatever I want to do. I think that's definitely uh, I think the the marketplace is catching up a bit. So before we go to a break, there I want to kind of drill in a bit more because this is a, a pretty, uh, you know, provocative statement that you know no one else. I mean, you're doing something that no one else is really doing at the moment, and I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities. But you have things that you're you're slated to to do, and we should maybe clarify for folks too. This is really in formation. I mean, you guys have got it all structured up. You have an amazing website. It's, it's Hildegard College. Um, there in you know near Newport Beach and your first inaugural class is what fall of, of a year from now, 2023. Is that right? That's right. So Hildegard College, our application opened um, as it, as at the time of recording here about two weeks ago. So wow. in September, okay. accepting applications for our first freshman class to begin in yeah. fall of 2023. So if I'm if I'm a parent and I'm thinking, okay, Matt, I'm intrigued. 
um, what really just give me give me your elevator on this. Like, what is unique in a in a very practical, real sense? And I know you've got some phrasing on your website, like you're an action based education, and you talk about things like entrepreneurship. That's already kind of blowing my model because when I think classical colleges, I'm thinking, you know, lots of guys and bow ties and reading great books and so maybe in a few pipes around. I mean, that's great stuff, but how, how can you put entrepreneurship in there? That sounds like you're going all utilitarian mm. on us. Can you explain this? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we are we are a new classical liberal arts college in Southern California that combines the deep study of great texts in the trivium and quadrivium that is yeah. in the humanities and also in the sciences and arts with the study of entrepreneurship. So we're named after the 12th century Benedictine abbess Hildegard von Bingen, who was a polymath, meaning she was proficient in many things and not an expert in just one thing. And we think of the word polymath as an old-fashioned term for the best uses of today's term entrepreneur, hmm. which is not just somebody who uh, is, is trained to start companies, but somebody who is trained in a kind of fortitude and adaptability such that they can lead organizations through time of uncertainty and times of growth and innovation. And so what we want to graduate and what we aim to form are students who are deeply educated, who are wise, virtuous, and of faith, but are also ready to enter society as people that organizations look to to lead them because they recognize those qualities. So we are bridging in a way that no other school right now really does the traditional liberal arts with the study of entrepreneurial thought and organizational leadership. Mm. Well, I think that's, again, it's a, it's, it's a, it's such a needed, um, you know, coming together in terms of, you know, the, again, it's really the, the, the putting into practice that which you're learning and doing it because we're going to take a break when we come back. Cause I want to talk about some of the typical pushbacks. And I know I've heard this even from mm -hmm. my own children, which is, wait a minute, I just, I've done this for 12 years. I mean, we did the classical Christian thing. Do we really need to keep doing more of this unless I want to be, you know, a, a great books professor someday or, you know, mm -hmm. or, or whatever. So I love how you're answering that, but this, this versatility and adaptability, which is absolutely imperative. I, I you know, often quote, I think it was Dell computers a number of years ago made the, the point that 85% of jobs that exist today won't exist you know, mm -hmm. 10 years from now. And so I think that's our greatest open house pitch, if you will, which is adaptability, certainly at the K-12 level. And now you're talking about, no, let's really make this happen where when these students graduate. Love this on your website. Uh, you say strategic thinking that they learn to understand systems, tackle complex problems, communicate effectively, launch initiatives and exercise wisdom in the face of adversity. <laughs> like raise your hand if we need more of that in the world. Um, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. So well, let's take a quick break, Matt. We'll be right back and we'll, we'll jump in. I'm curious your answer to this question uh, when they say, hey, why do we need more of this classical Christian thing? Uh, how you would answer that. We'll be right back. Matt Smith. So Matt, I'm really curious how you answer the question because being a classicist, being in the world of K-12, but also now starting a, a classical college, you you must, uh, if I had to rank probably the questions you get, I'm guessing one of the top ones is this, hey, we've already done classical Christian and you sold us back when we were kindergarten parents that they were going to be ready for anything to take on the world. And wait a minute, now you're telling us they need to go consider a classical Christian college. So how, what's the answer to that? You know, Do we still need more of this? <laughs> 
Yes. yes. Okay. The answer, the answer right. <laughs> is absolutely yes. The typical, you're, you're right. Um, when we speak with folks in the classical education community, both in the homeschool community and in schools, yeah, what we find is a question a lot from students, especially classically educated students, that um, they, you know they think, well, I already did this, right? I've I've done the classical ed thing. Now I want to go out. I want to be in a larger community. I want to do the big university thing. They're often thinking about um, practical things they can study that will launch them into certain career trajectories. Uh, there's also a, a a sizable contingent of folks, especially in the homeschool community, very savvy parents who have invested, especially in their kids' education personally, and uh, and th they tend to take a very pragmatic route. And I'm not um, I'm not criticizing. I think that there is a practical wisdom to it, where they homeschool their children classically. Often they graduate high school and then they um, they chart a course for them that often begins with community college, the application of maybe concurrent credits that they've gotten in high school, uh, and then through a state school system. And I think that there's a distrust of higher education that is warranted, in my opinion, that is motivating the way that they try to game the system. And uh, it's, again, it's it, there's a certain wisdom to it, but it's unnecessary and I think really neglects to consider how, if I could say this respectfully, how the good work done at, in classical education, the K-12 level, can so easily be undone right. in often hidden ways in college. Well, so unpack that further, because I think that's a really significant point, because again, and it may be, let me preface that by saying in some ways, perhaps because we, we wanna, if you will, sell, if I can use that term, K-12 mm -hmm. and our open houses and everything, we really probably overpromise a level of readiness that probably isn't there, especially if their brains aren't fully formed till they're 25, <laughs> according to research. So here they go off at 13th grade, and uh, and we all know the, the woes of so many college stories. But unpack a little bit more where you think those deficiencies are. Yeah, and I, I would say it at the pedagogical level. When I say pedagogical, I mean how something is taught as opposed to what right. exactly is taught. It's easy to say what is taught. It's more difficult for a school to explain how they teach is affecting right. what somebody will become. And at the at the core of this problem is a division between what you might think of as liberal education and practical education or what we, we call liberal arts and the servile arts. Um, that is that is really based on a pragmatist John Dewey influence, and I, I know that the CCE community is to some extent largely familiar with this kind of thought, uh, progressive way of thinking about education. That uh, at its core, I mean, when you when you when you track the, uh, the the most prevalent forms of secular thought at universities today, people tend to think, "Oh, are my kids being indoctrinated into you know whatever critical mm -hmm. race theory or something like that." But it's, it goes deeper than that, where the uh, critical theory had its inception through a community of Marxist thinkers in the early 20th century called the Frankfurt School. Mm. And the Frankfurt School thought very deeply about the distinction between theory and praxis, theory being interpretation, praxis meaning applying that to actually change the world. And uh, 
Marxism in critical theory and cultural studies today that's become so prevalent has gained traction largely because this, this kind of critical thought is bridging theory and praxis, or what we might call learning and, and creation in a way that the classical education world does not do as fluidly or as well. Mm. We're very, very good in classical education at championing liberal education as the as learning for the sake of freedom, right? Freedom of the moral human will, right. freedom of the soul in Christ in Christian settings. Um, but we need to do more to bridge it to the to 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 the practical. And there are both, I think, practical and philosophical reasons for this. A practical reason is that students tend to invest themselves morally and vocationally when they are asked to create, when they're most expressive and creative. So it's it's easy for me to think of examples of this, you know, uh, teaching for 15 years in higher education. I might have a psychology major or an education major. And these are just two examples of kind of pre-professional majors where they really just jump straight to practice or praxis, meaning they're immersed in the study, not of what is good, but the study of what is effective. And the more that you are immersed in a culture of effective action rather than moral and free action, the heavier that veil pulled over their eyes becomes and the more difficult to lift off as they progress. And so you can have a good foundation in K through 12 education and then go to college, be asked to practice something creatively, unaware of the fact that it's founded on a worldview that uh, that that does not allow for the first principles you used to believe in. And there's a significant danger there. There's no, um, it's no surprise that statistically 60% of college students of faith lose their faith by the time they graduate college, 80% by the time they're 30. It's not just because of the times or just because professors are indoctrinating them. No, this is even true at many Christian universities. Why? because of the pedagogical reasons, because there's a disconnect between liberal and practical learning that I think infects the school, these schools at their core. Yeah. Well, and I, I, another angle on that is you're, is you're, uh, is you're explaining that, which I think is extremely helpful as I think about, again, the perception of the K-12 student parent is that this classical experience is going to be very, um, very restrictive. And what I mean by that is uh, it's unfortunately, and I don't think that we in K-12 have really figured out how to begin to allow for the creativity and the imagination and the, and the exploration that needs to happen in the rhetoric stage. And so we have a lot of mm. K-12 students that are honestly sort of operating in a, in, a, in a grammar school kind of a frame where there's, again, everything is prescribed and there's lots of rules and there's there's great ideas to discuss, but it's not that vibrant, dynamic, rich, entrepreneurial type of an environment. And so ironically and tragically, to your point, they're picking these schools that have 400 majors because it seems like there's all of these expressive opportunities. And in reality, not only is it equally or even more of a boxed-in experience around what the standards and expectations are, but what you're doing is creating a true environment where that the things that they're hungry for, for asking and exploring and um, I Again, I think I think that it's a really interesting point you're making because I think we stop short of really a thoughtful analysis of of why we need thirteenth um, grade and beyond. So that's that's very helpful. Yeah, and I would I would add that uh, 
we, at least at Hildegard College, and I think other classical schools as well, we, re we reject the idea that creation and practice and application have to be defined in a utilitarian way, as if they are the ends of liberal education. They're not. They're not the ends of liberal education. Even classically speaking, you know, based in the works of Plato and Aristotle, the think about the cave analogy in Plato's Republic. It is through study of created things, right. study of nature, that we can be elevated out of the cave. And I think that the study of how to do things can work dialectically, that is dialogically, can work in tandem with the study of the good, the true, and the beautiful, right. such that in the end, as we're creating things, we continue to learn about uh, what is the good? So in the in the in example, in the final year at Hildegard College, students will do a polymath project. This is a big um, kind of entrepreneurial project they can do in any way. It could be starting a business. It could be doing a project for another organization that already exists. But what we ask students to do is not just to apply what they've learned through their liberal education, trivial and quadrivial arts, uh, to a practical problem. They do that, but then they must also identify within the practice of their liberal education, they must identify how they discover more about the good. So they are they are kind of cycling back purposefully to make sure that their orientation towards uh, applied knowledge and towards what we might call entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial activity is, um, is rightly ordered towards the things for which we work in the first place. So a proper and good integration of faith learning and work together is one in which work is not the pinnacle whatsoever. It's not. But that is how I think a lot of schools, even Christian schools, tend to treat it. Here's your general education. You're going to get a little spattering of liberal education here. And then really what you should care about is your major. Let's shuffle you as quickly as possible yeah. into your kinesiology major or your physical therapy major or your you know, uh, uh, yeah. public affairs major, whatever it might be. And there is there's something totally backwards about that. Well, to add insult to injury, so often liberal arts majors are, it's not done well, and it's done in a very, uh, you know, constricting way. So that, that is why there are a lot of liberal arts majors that probably do work as baristas in coffee shops, because it was <laughs> never done well. So we, you've, again, you're fighting a stigma before you even get started with, you know, come to Hildegard and study these great text but you're you're not ending there you're 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 fleshing it out with praxis and the entrepreneurial side of it so there's a it's a holistic education i guess is a simple way to say it that's yeah and i don't so care lacking. why yeah. you know somebody could come because they're interested in the entrepreneurial part yeah being creative learning how to do things or they could come because they're interested in a classical education right, right. in which they're progressing in the right order of learning yeah doesn't matter to me why they come because when they come what they'll find yeah is that they're one and the same it's the same endeavor that's great Matt. well let's take another quick break and i want to come back and get you know, back, very practical around this question, how should a person choose a college? How should a, a parent help a student? How should a student, maybe if a college advisor's listening? I mean, this is really important. You've done some great thinking on this because if you don't even know how to ask the right question, you're probably not going to know how to find the right answer. So let's come back after the break and figure out both the right question and the right answer. Thanks so much. We'll be right back with Matt Smith. It's time for another quick Classical Christian Q&A with Dr. Tam Dernlin. 
So Tim, question of the day is how are students trained in proper manners? Boy, we need those today in our culture. How do we train students in these? We do. It's a, it's a beautiful thing we do in classical Christian education. There's so much we uh, try and get in and, and training in proper manners and uh, protocol and, and etiquette is really important. So students are trained in poise and eloquence, etiquette, and from formal and form and informal instruction. So in the classrooms, they're, they're taught in this ways, but a lot of classical Christian schools have, have someone dedicated to training students with uh, table settings, with uh, properly tying a tie, with uh, different ways to uh, escort uh, someone or conduct yourselves as, at a dance. And a lot of how we do that is so that we can present ourselves uh, well in society, but mostly as, as Christians, as we love others and treat others well in the image of God. And then we can enjoy dances at weddings. We can enjoy um, opportunities that we have to see cultural experiences. Um, some, some schools have um, a protocol event where they have a uh, dance cards and they've been taught dance instructions others choose to go to a broadway show and 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 uh experience going out to dinner and there's lots of really neat intentional ways that this is happening in schools and it's it's just a beautiful thing that's one of the things we get from visitors at our schools is they say wow the the manners jumped out it's hard to see the academics or other things but but just the way people are looking looking in the eyes showing respect um, to other humans created in the image of God. It's a beautiful thing. Well, and, it's, and I think some people might look at that and think that's kind of, you're just training up folks to be kind of elitist or highbrow. And there is, and that's not the goal, but there is a definite difference in high culture and low culture. And we are a culture today that revels in low culture, the more grungy and nasty and disrespectful somehow, the better. And we are completely counter that. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing to teach manners. Absolutely. We have, we have a young man who's probably going to go into um, the, the mechanic field and, and skip college, and he's going to be looking his clients in the eyes, treating them with respect, get so much more business and treating, treating all his, his folks with, uh, with love and respect. It's, it's, um, it's all of life, yeah. uh, loving God and loving others. Yeah, and who doesn't want that, that employee working for them? That's, uh, that's how yeah. we redeem the culture today. So thanks so much, Dr. Tim. Check out Dr. Dernland's book on 100 questions on classical Christian education. Got a question for him to answer on Basecamp Live? Send the question to info at Basecamp Live or leave us a message by voice or text on the Basecamp hotline, 833-595-2929. That's 833-595-2929. We look forward to hearing from you. So Matt, really excited about hearing your thoughts on how should we choose a college. I have certainly seen what probably many of us in classical Christian K-12 have have seen, and that is students that get to that decision point for college, and they're they're not given perhaps a whole lot of help in that process. And what they're kind of left with is, you know, the the whatever, whoever can razzle-dazzle them the best and wherever their friends go. Um, I won't name the name, but there's a, a Christian college that a lot of our students ended up going to because they got a free flight down to the campus. Um, they could ride on an airplane. They got some great pizza, and they had <laughs> all these amenities, and 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 it was affordable. And they took concurrent credit, and the parents liked it, and boom, there was the decision. So we can probably do better than that. Help us out. Yeah how do how do people choose colleges? Um, I 
I was uh, a few years ago when I was at my previous academic institution and got involved with some leadership in an effort to change the culture there. I did some research into how it is that people actually choose colleges. So not beginning with a question, how ought one to choose college? Well, let's back up. Yeah. How do people actually choose colleges? And there was a there was a, a very influential book came out by Michael Horn and Bob Moesta called Choosing Colleges College uh, a number of years ago, influenced by the thought of the Harvard business professor Clayton Christensen. And what it did in this book, Choosing Colleges, it deployed a model of jobs to be done is a certain model of business thinking to the higher education question. So the way that jobs to be done works is that you don't buy something because you want it or you need it. Instead, you hire something to do a job for you. And the, the most interesting example they gave was why people buy milkshakes from a fast food restaurant like McDonald's. <laughs> and they, they, they saw this phenomenon that people were buying milkshakes primarily in the morning, early morning. Very strange, right? Why, why, why are they doing this? It turns out it's not because they really want the taste of a milkshake at, milkshake at that time and they want dessert in the morning or because they think it's healthy. None of the reasons why we think people order certain food. It's because, and this isn't surprising, it's, it's, it's easy to consume on a commute. It's, it's filling. It's quick to purchase. Right. It's affordable. It's filling. And it's so filling, it sits like a dead weight in your stomach until lunchtime. <laughs> you don't want to eat until then. And you're not going to be distracted at work. People buy milkshakes. They're hiring milkshakes to do these jobs for them. Mm. So applied to choosing college, why do 18-year-olds choose college? What jobs do they hire college to do for them? And they tend to be, uh, the research they found, you know, one of the highest reasons, uh, uh, jobs that they hire college for is to meet expectations, their own, their families, their educators, meet people's expectations. Mm. Uh, secondly, this idea of stepping it up or maybe extending yourself into something new, extending yourself, right? Stretch yourself, challenge yourself. A, a very prevalent uh, example within the top three was uh, you hire a college to simply get into your best school. It sounds circular. It is circular. Uh, why do you choose a certain college? Because it's your best, quote unquote, best school. And then lastly, maybe just getting away and often not too far away, but getting away. And so this is, um, I actually commend this book. I think it's a good book for seeing behind the curtain because universities are uh, definitively turning this direction, not just for their marketing, how to recruit students, which all universities want to do, but also for how to design a program that will be marketable in these ways. But if yeah. you think about that, yeah. it's also based on a deeply consumeristic view of human nature, and it reveals the bankruptcy of the higher education industry as a whole, as universities prey on these motivations and completely neglect any consideration of the highest ends of learning. Yeah. And so this is this feeds into why the good work of classical K-12 education can easily be undone. What will happen, you know, we like to use these terms like the educating the whole person. What will happen to your sense of the whole person when success in college is measured uh by by secular and consumeristic standards of extending oneself or being at one's yeah. best school without defining the good that the best is measured by or getting away and so on. Who determines this good? Extending yourself to where? Uh, th this is the this is what I would call the kind of hidden danger of not being intentional about that college decision. Uh, and when you when you think about how people actually choose colleges, it is not in line with what we think we're doing when we choose a college. Yeah. And by, by the way, I'm sure folks have seen, and I'm sure you have. The, the documentary film came out a number of years ago, Ivory Tower. It's probably about five six years mm -hmm. old. There was just a, yeah, another voice into that. Just the 
um, kind of the lunacy of, of, you know, especially larger colleges that are just trying to cater to the clientele. I mean, decision makers are 18 year olds. And so put in steak restaurants and floating rivers and these things sell. So let's, let's fill seats and create razzle dazzle. So obviously that's not the right way to do it, but yeah, continue on. So what, what should we be asking? What are the questions? You know, when I was, um, when I was an English professor, which is what I've taught in the past, at one point, you know, I would get freshmen coming in, sometimes undeclared majored freshmen, and they'd be asking me about what, you know, what should I major in? And I got to a point where I felt pretty uncomfortable saying major in English. And you, you touched on this earlier, Davies, where I, it wasn't because I didn't believe that studying literature was important. I think it was, it is important. But the nature of universities now is that these liberal arts are often siloed. They're not universities, they're multiversities, and they're siloed, these, these liberal arts, into I want to call them proto-professional disciplines, where you study English as if you're going to become a professional academic, not in a way that's oriented to the goods of the study of literature, which ought to be very closely related to the goods of studying economics and politics and theology and so forth. So I became accustomed to asking students to consider the question, what is it that a college can do for you better than another kind of institution, which is different from the college, sorry, from the question, what do you want to hire a college to do for you? What is that college can do for you better than another kind of institution? If the answer is nothing, don't go to college. There's obviously an answer. It gives you a stamp, a degree. Uh, uh, research shows that people with a four-year college degree earn more in their lifetime on average economically than uh, people without a college degree. But how can we how can we reframe this question? I think the way that I like to think about it is to ask of a college, if you're on the phone, if you're a parent on the phone with a college counselor or you're at college info night or something like that, ask them, what is the point of education according to your school? What's the point of it? Hmm. And if they don't have an answer to that at all, hang up the phone. <laughs> but they probably will have some answer to it, and it won't be singular. And if it's not singular, follow the Socratic method. Okay, well, what is the common denominator among these? Is college oriented towards a good? What is it? And if there are multiple goods, which one is the one that requires me to invest the kind of money and time that I'm going to do? Uh, I'm, I'm going to invest in it. So what is the point of education according to your school has to be the question that that helps to reorient us the right way towards actually choosing a college, not just hiring it to fulfill expectations, but to uh, to pursue something worthy of being pursued. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Just sometimes the simple things are the most profound. What's the point of this education at your college? And uh, I mean, I, I again, I can think of a lot of college reps that have come through our K-12 school over the years, and their number one, two, and thir- th- third point, if not all the way down to about number five, is is all the entertainments. It's the you know mm-hmm. nearness to city center for you know restaurants and all these other things. You think they're from the Chamber of Commerce more than from the university in that regard. But uh, yeah, good point. Carry on. What are other questions we should be considering when choosing a college? I think, I mean, I mentioned the question, what will I learn if I go to your college? The yeah. question... Um, what one interesting question that colleges want you to ask them is, what is the path to a career hmm. at your college? And what they're going to do is talk about usually uh, the different majors that they are especially celebrating that they think is are going to boost their enrollment is going to be professional majors. Um, what they're not going to talk about is 
what is actually going to give you a return on investment in your in your uh, in your investment in college. So this is some interesting research here. The, the, uh, uh, institutes spend a ton of time and money on trying to figure out what what predicts a good return on in your your investment in college, and not just a financial return, but a quality of life return. Are you going to have a meaningful, fulfilling vocation or career? And you know the school you go to is one. Is it prestigious? If you go to Stanford, that's going to be different in terms of your opportunities than another school. Uh, your major, the major you choose, is really kind of minor distinctions in as a predictor of the return on investment. And it turns out that the the only serious predictor for a good return on investment in college is, and it's going to sound almost dumb and obvious when I say it, <laughs> but it is what kind of student were you in college, right? So regardless of your major, regardless of the college you went to, if you were the kind of student who slept in and skipped classes and spent all your time in Greek life um, and just thought that, you know, well, parents are paying for this and I'm going to have an alumni network and I'm going to be fine, you're going to have a terrible return on investment. But if you're the kind of student who is going to every class, who's doing all the reading, who's making good friends, who's staying, you know, continuing conversations in the classroom deep into the night with your friends in your apartment or dorm room, who's hounding your professors in their office hours until they scream at you to go away. If you're that kind of student, you're most likely going to have a fantastic return on investment. That might seem like, well, how does that help me choose? How does that help me choose a college? The answer is simple. What kinds of colleges require more than others their students to be those kinds of students? Are there certain colleges and college programs uh, for which in order to succeed, you have to be the kind of student that is going to have fortitude, that is going to be um, socially productive, that is going to be hardworking, that's going to uh, be seeking to learn not just practical knowledge, but also wisdom and to be formed in virtue. These are the characteristics that make for a good student and therefore predict a strong ROI. Yeah. Are there colleges that actually do that? It's a good question to ask. That's a great question. And it does seem like just the simple corollary to if you were in a in a college with a lower professor to student ratio, meaning you have small class sizes and proximity, mm -hmm. to you, naturally you're going to have, I think, better opportunity for good habits when you're sitting in a giant lecture room with 450 students uh, and a TA up front. I mean, there's no way to even, a lot of times those habits are even hard to get formed. So again, I don't know what your anticipated teacher to student ratio is going to be, but I'm sure it's pretty low and everybody's going to know everybody's name. That's the goal. It's six to one wow. to eight to one, depending wow. on a class. And I would, and I think the second, if I remember correctly, uh, I'll check this later, but the second most likely predictor of a good ROI in college is relationships. And this yeah. is self-reported, yeah. right? I'm happy. People report, I'm happy with the investment I made in college and the time I spent there. <laughs> what are you happy about? What do you remember? Yeah. They remember mentorship from professors and relationships with their peers around the academic community. So yeah. not in extracurriculars. Yeah. This is why it's so important, I think, that a lot of these new classical colleges, including Hildegard College, are using a common curriculum. Yeah. How, how better to create community than to have all students study the same things, experience the same academic challenges, and also therefore achievements, mm -hmm. and for their community to be based in that journey of learning together? Yeah. No, I, I often 
people ask what I majored. I went to Furman University and majored in sociology and people look at me like, well, that's really boring. I said, yeah, it totally is boring. <laughs> the only reason I majored in it, and this ties back to your point, is because the one of the professors that I really connected with is a former police officer. So he said, if you really want to do sociology, show up with me uh, at, at, you know, at 10 p.m. on a Friday night and myself and you know the professor and a couple of students, we would ride around in some pretty seedy parts of downtown Greenville, South Carolina. And he would start explaining what was happening on the streets mm. as a part of the sociology. And I went, okay, now this is interesting, but it was that professor's investment. Again, I'm sure we all have these stories that these are life decisions made in part because of these people mentoring us that are on a path that we admire. So all the better in a ratio of six or eight or so, what a, an amazing opportunity that would be. So, well, I know time's getting short. Anything else, Matt, that would be just kind of helpful to that that person saying, gosh, I got this huge decision in front of me. You've covered a lot. Anything else? I would encourage folks to look to um, organizations like the site of classical learning, like the classic learning test um, that help to kind of aggregate these schools. It's difficult to just find schools. I mean, how do you do it? Most universities find you because they spend a million dollars to purchase a huge email list from the college board or something like that. Um, there are organizations out there that help to um, help to direct you. I think SEL is one of them to the kinds of colleges that uh, that I think have better answers to those questions that I asked. Um, so certainly, um, we have some material on this on our blog. You go to our website, Hildegard.college, of course. Um, you're free to email me and I'm happy to meet with and talk with anybody, whether you're interested, whether you have a kid that's approaching college or not. You know, I love to talk yeah. about these things to hear what your experience is as well. So I definitely, thanks. you right where I was going. I definitely want people to know where to find you and how to follow up. So for everybody out there, uh, cause I've learned if I don't stop and ask this for clarity, I'll get lots of emails, which is always fine. Info at Basecamp Live. Email me anytime, but Hildegard, spell that out for everybody so they know exactly where to go and the URL for you. Yeah, Hildegard.college, H-I-L-D-E-G-A-R-D.college. Okay, perfect. So you go to Hildegard.college, you can sign up our, our, on our email list. Um, you can email info at Hildegard.college. Say you're looking to talk to Dr. Smith, the president, it'll get routed to me, and I'm happy to have a conversation. Uh, right. Our application opened very recently for our inaugural class, and we're looking for not just students that are excited to... to uh, to experience this journey with us, but students that are excited to establish the culture yeah. of a brand new college, kind of a one of a kind opportunity. Yeah, no, this has been so helpful. And I do hope if you're listening and you're a, a parent or a faculty member and you, whoever that person is at your school that is helping students make these decisions, kind of wearing that college advisor hat, please let them know about this podcast and what and what you're doing uh, and what Matt's doing, because I think just creating forums for these conversations is really important because the landscape is changing so fast. These are huge decisions. Matt, thank you again for your courage, for your faithfulness, for helping us understand how to choose wisely. Such an important decision. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Davies. It's been a delight. Great. Well, we'll have you back on and hear how the first year goes or the second year. So it'll be an exciting journey ahead. Thanks so much. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davies' daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, 
and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.